Good morning. Good morning. <clears throat> My name is Pastor John. Thank you so much for joining us here at worship, whether you're here in the sanctuary, whether you're joining us online. Thank you so much for participating in the worship of East Shore Baptist Church. Well, today we're going to have a little bit of a blast from the past. <laughs> we're going to go back a little bit to the long ago time of six and a half, seven months ago, where things were very different. And the world looked very different at that time. And so much has changed in all of our lives in that time period. But way back then, beginning of the year, we were studying the Sermon on the Mount. The Sermon on the Mount. And of course, then coronavirus and the pandemic started coming in the area. And when we moved to online um, kind of worship things, then uh, we decided to change course with what we were doing on Sunday mornings. But since we're now together again, and many of us are here, and those of you who join us online too, it's time, I think, to go back and to hear what Jesus has to say to us. And in a dark and confusing time, I think it's helpful to listen to the words of Jesus and to learn from him about what his view of the world and how we should be living. So since we're kind of going back into this series, which we had just called the sermon, since we're going back into it again, I, I mean, maybe we need to rename it and we'll call it the sermon, I don't know, volume two or something, the remix, I, I don't know, whatever you want to call the series now, we're coming back to looking at the Sermon on the Mount. So this is a sermon that Jesus actually preached, but it's also an excellent summary of his regular teaching. It's the kinds of things that Jesus spoke about as he taught, as he traveled from town to town, as he performed miracles. This was the kind of thing that Jesus said. When we looked at it before, we got about 30 verses in, and so today's going to be a little different from a traditional sermon because we're just really reviewing what's happened in the Sermon on the Mount so far. But I hope that we'll be challenged and also encouraged by these words of Jesus, because he's going to be doing a lot of talking today, and we're listening to our Lord and Savior. As for me, I'm just going to try to hit the main points that we talked about, as well as the main kind of application that we drew as we went through the sermon. And this should really prepare us to, when we get together next week, to continue looking at the Sermon on the Mount. So let's pray, and then we'll see what Jesus has to say to us. Lord, thank you for the privilege of being here, the privilege of being able to worship with God's people, and now the privilege to hear from you. Thank you for your word. Thank you for this passage, which you tell us exactly what you think. So help us to listen to you. Help us to learn from you. May it comfort us. May it challenge us. May it lead us to depend on you in all things. May we clearly see you, Jesus, in your words. May it be true that you increase and that you are the one who is honored and praised in this time we have together. Thank you, Lord, for your word. Thank you for hearing it together with brothers and sisters in Christ. May our lives be changed as a result of what you have said. It's in your name that I pray. Amen. So a couple of main points we want to hit. One is, if we're talking about this passage, the Sermon on the Mount, it's helpful for us to know what is the sermon about. This is a long passage, covers three chapters in Matthew's gospel, and what is the main point that Jesus is trying to make? Well, the main point seems to be an emphasis on exceeding righteousness, exceeding righteousness. And that's really coming from a verse 20, which I'll get to in just a second. But what's happening here is this is from the book, The Gospel, The Good News, According to Matthew. 
And in this gospel, this story of Jesus, we're told about how Jesus called disciples to himself, and they started to follow him and learn from him. And then Jesus begins preaching, he's proclaiming, and he's also healing many people. Crowds, multitudes are gathering around him. More and more people are coming to see him. And seeing these crowds, Jesus decides to deliver this sermon. So the sermon begins, Matthew chapter 5, verses 1 and 2. It says this. It's on the screen, or you can follow along in your Bible. It says, Seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him. And he opened his mouth and taught them, saying the next three chapters that we have. The picture that's there is that's a picture of a church that was built on the site where it's traditionally believed Jesus preached this. We don't know for sure, but he was maybe have been in that area somewhere around the Sea of Galilee. And that's a mountain that's near there. So Jesus goes up on this mountain and he's giving God's new commandments, God's new standard of living. And when he's doing this, he's kind of modeling what happened in the Old Testament where the prophet Moses went up on a mountain and gave God's commandments to his people. So Jesus also goes out on a mountain and gives new commandments. He's not contradicting what was said before. He's expanding on it. He's applying it to the lives of his people. He's really replacing Moses as the most important figure for God's people. He's a prophet like Moses who has arisen and now he speaks. And he begins the sermon talking about the disciples' character, which we'll talk about in a second, but then he moves on to kind of the main point, which is God's people are to be righteous. And perhaps chapter 5, verse 20 is the best summary of this. Jesus says, for I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. The righteousness of Jesus' disciples is to exceed, it's to surpass, go beyond what even the most serious religious leaders of the day were doing. Those are the scribes and the Pharisees. It's only someone who has that kind of righteousness that will see the kingdom of heaven. Now, if we've spent some time in church, we may have heard some things that that may make us raise our eyebrows and think, what exactly is Jesus talking about here? Because I've heard pastors say in church that we're not saved by what we do, and righteousness are things we do, but we're saved by, by grace through faith in Christ. So why is Jesus saying, I need this righteousness? There's things I need to be doing. I found, a, I found this quote from Pastor David Platt very helpful. He said, what Jesus is demanding is not more righteous deeds by human effort, but more righteous hearts by divine grace. Jesus isn't saying there's all these other things you should be doing. He's saying there's someone you should be on the inside. And if you've changed on the inside, there will be a different way that you live. So the Sermon on the Mount is not a checklist of things we need to do to get to heaven, but it's telling us this is what men and women who are a part of God's kingdom, men and women who are on their way to heaven, who Christ has worked in their hearts, this is how they will live. It's a message about the Christian life. It's a warning against the traps that we can fall into of either lawlessness or legalism. We can live lawlessly. We can do whatever we want, whenever we want it. And Jesus is saying, no, that's not the way to live. You can't do whatever you want. But he's also not saying, living for me is not a a checkboxes that you can mark. It's not just doing things on the outside. 
Jesus is calling for something that goes beyond that, that exceeds that. He's talking about a righteousness from the heart. Because a heart that loves God will produce someone that truly obeys Scripture. It's a heart that loves God that does that. A list of rules does not make someone good. They have to desire to obey and follow it. Rules and laws are good, but someone has to want to obey them. If someone doesn't understand, if someone doesn't embrace a rule, if they don't want to obey it, then they won't. Or they might just do like the scribes and Pharisees. They might obey it just to look good on the outside, but not because they actually care about it. They just do it to feel good about themselves. But on the other hand, the life of a genuine Christian will be right thinking, right actions, right living. They'll have a character, a heart submitted to God, and that is what produces righteous living. They'll live for God not because they have to, because they want to. They'll find delight in giving up things that the rest of the world may value. They'll find a greater satisfaction in knowing and obeying God than they will in enjoying some temporary pleasure. They're not focused on doing what looks good to others, but they're focused on an inner righteousness, a right relationship with God. And they don't live in fear that they'll fail God, but they live in joy serving the one that they love. When we obey God's law from the heart, we avoid hypocrisy. We prioritize our time knowing God that we have here on earth. We depend on him in all our relationships and in all circumstances. But if we're going to have this type of heart, there's a type of character that shows that we are in this right relationship with God. And so the sermon that Jesus gives opens with the description of a true Christian's character. If someone is a true Christian, a genuine follower of Jesus Christ, there'll be a type of character they have. There'll be something that we can see and say, yes, this is someone who knows Jesus. It's only, the only people who can live the exceeding righteousness Jesus is calling for are people who have this character. And the sermon opens with a section that's known as the Beatitudes. And it's just a series of statements that begin with the word, blessed are the, blessed are the, blessed are the. And it tells us about someone's character. It tells us what a follower of Jesus should look like. It's a complete picture of how Jesus lived and how his followers are to live as they become like him. This is the way of life that all of God's followers are to pursue. Now, we can look at it, we could be overwhelmed, but he's not saying Christians will live this out perfectly. One Christian may do one of these better than another, but all Christians will live out these character traits. These character traits demonstrate how we're submitted to God, how we trust Him, how we live for Him, both before Him, within ourselves, and before others. It starts, verses 3 and 4, where he says, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. And Jesus is saying, blessed are those who realize their need for God. He's saying God doesn't want you to pretend like you have it all together. He wants his people to honestly express, I need you, God. I cannot do this on my own. True Christians are aware of their limitations. They know they need God. They know that they are hopeless without him. And Jesus is saying that God's comfort comes to those who have mourned the deep blackness of their sin, or where my sin has separated me from God. They're broken about it. And if they're broken about it, God's saying that is when 
my comfort can come. Because when Christ's people mourn and turn away from their sin, then they experience God's amazing, comforting grace. So who we are before God on the outside is, is important, how we're living before Him, but He changes us from the inside out. And so what's the internal character that we have? Well, Jesus starts with someone who is meek or humble. He says in verse 5, Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. And here we're seeing how this character is very different from what the rest of the world praises, because meekness is not a quality that is praised outside of God's kingdom. Outside of that, we value those who are self-sufficient, strong, take care of themselves. But Jesus is saying it is the meek who will inherit the earth. This meekness does not mean we're weak. It doesn't mean that we don't stand up for what we believe in. It doesn't mean we're a pushover. It means that we know that we are not the most important person in the world. Meekness is taking comfort from the fact, this life is not all about me. So that means I can treat others better than myself. Life is not all about me. It's about God first and foremost, and I can love others then, since I don't have to worry about taking care of myself or getting what I want all the time. So then he says in verse 6 that blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness and God's justice because they understand their position before God and so they're seeking more of God's goodness in the world then they will be satisfied, will be made content in their relationship with in the Lord, their righteousness that they have before God. They'll want more of God's goodness because they know God is the only one that we need. They'll want to know Him. They'll hunger to be more like Him. Again, this isn't saying that a Christian never struggles with sin. It's not saying that. But it does mean we'll have a burning desire to be with, to know our Lord. We'll want to do good. We'll want to honor God. We'll hunger and thirst for righteousness. Verse 7 adds, blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Those who show mercy will have mercy shown to them. Again, this is how we're modeling Jesus. If we show mercy and kindness to others, we're saying that I don't have to get my way. I don't have to get what I want. I realize my life is not about me. It's more about God and his glory. We're revealing a character that says, I've received mercy so I can show mercy to others. Again, it's not something that we're doing to earn favor with God. You can look at that and say, well, so if I'm not merciful to someone, then God won't forgive me. That's, that's not exactly what's going on there, but it's saying that if God has shown us mercy, then we will be more willing to show it to others. We'll be compelled to extend his mercy and grace. In other words, the state of our heart will be important to us. That's verse 8. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. That doesn't mean our actions are not important. Our actions are, but it has to start with our heart. Right actions will only come from a right heart and a right mind. Then we can show God's grace to others. As verse 9 says, blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. And God is passionate about peace. He desires the absence of strife, restored relationships among his creation. And Jesus is saying those who strive for peace, they'll receive the full inheritance of a, being a part of my family, being one of my descendants. He calls them the sons of God. If we've been adopted into God's family, when we turn from sin, that's what God does. He adopts us. He brings us into our family, like bringing in a wayward child. And if that's happened to us, then we will want 
to show peace to others. We want to live as a peacemaker because that is how our family lives. That's what our family does. So a follower of Christ doesn't seek to be quarrelsome. They don't want to be an agitator. A true Christian will strive for peace. And our holiness is not determined by how many fights we start, but it's determined by the amount of Christ peace that we share. But not everyone's going to receive this well. Verses 10 through 12 tell us, Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you, utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. If we have this kind of character that Jesus talked about, some are not going to respond well to it. It will invite persecution because this is the opposite of the way the world acts. The world's about seek your own self, seek what you want, make sure you get what's right for you. And this has all been about God is most important. And we can show grace, mercy, peace to others because we have that relationship with God. He then kind of expands on it in that verse 11 and 12, and he's saying his followers will be blessed though, even if they experience persecution, criticism, insults, mocking, have evil falsehoods spoken about them. It's not you who's being attacked, it's really Jesus. The slander comes on his account. We're insulted because we are following him. But we can even be rejoice and be glad in it. That's what he says at the very end. We can because we're blessed. That's what this section is, the Beatitudes. We can rejoice because we're entitled to be a part of God's kingdoms. Blessed are those who are persecuted, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And we're also blessed because we're sharing in the same type of experience of our brothers and sisters in Christ throughout the ages. As he says, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. God's people have always been looked down on, torn down by those who don't know him. And they do that because when they look at Christians, they see that they're different. And they're different because, Jesus says, they are salt and light. They stand out from the rest of the world. And if they're standing out, then how should we live? Well, we shouldn't hide, but we should shine the light that God has given us. This is kind of the application driving from Jesus saying that we are salt and light, that we shouldn't hide, but shine. In verse 13, he says that his disciples alone are the only true salt in the world. He says, you are the salt of the earth, but if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out trampled under people's feet. Jesus is reminding his disciples they're different. They're in the world to make a difference. They're not to retreat into a little holy huddle, stay away from everyone else. They're to be in the world. If you keep your salt and your salt shaker on the table, you don't pour it out, nothing happens. Nothing changes in what you're eating. But if we use salt, a couple things can happen. It can preserve food. And that's what we do in the world. In a world that's ugly and that is rough, Jesus' followers are different. We care about things such as truth, beauty, kindness, civility, when everyone else has no time for those things. We insist that truth matters, that treating people with kindness matters, that viewing every person as created in the image of God, that that matters, that that's important, that people have value even when we disagree with them. And when others want to reject truth, beauty, and kindness, God's people stand firm. They preserve those values. 
Salt, though, also seasons. It adds flavor to life. And if God's people are living for Him, it will make life on this planet better. It'll make it special and better. Christians make a difference in the world when they're passionate for their Lord. Through each individual Christian's gifts, talents, their abilities, their occupations, God blesses His creation. We're in the world, but we're distinct from it. Because if we're just like everyone else, then we won't make a difference. We'll just blend in and fade into the background. We're like salt that's lost its taste. God, though, has made us light. He has brought light into the world and made us this light. He says in verses 14 and 15, you are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but they put it on a stand. It gives light to all in the house. We are light. We are the light of the world. It means Jesus has changed his people. We sang a song a little bit ago. The worship team mentioned about how God's, Jesus stepped into darkness. He became our light in darkness. And that's exactly what happened. We were stuck in darkness, but he's put his light in us because we've turned from sin and we have a relationship with him. We now reflect his light, like how the moon reflects the sunlight. We reflect Jesus's glorious truth to the world. So there's a couple ways that we can apply that, that we should learn from it. And the one which we mentioned, this you've already written it down if you're following along in the notes, but we shouldn't hide then. We don't need to hide our light. He's given us this light. He's made us salt. We don't need to hide who we are, but we need to show who we are. God's purposes are pushed forward by individual believers who have been saved, changed by the Holy Spirit as they make a difference where they live and where God has placed them. And this is sometimes a message that that we miss because we think that we're just one person and we can't have a difference in the world around us, that what I do doesn't really impact anything. Now, if there were a bunch of people, we had a big movement of people, oh, then that will make a difference. But if we sit back just waiting for a movement of people, then nothing changes and nothing happens. God doesn't move or make a difference on the whole through large political movements or through things that happen on a big level. Change happens when individual people make a difference and seek to show God's kindness and grace to one another. That's when the change happens. That's really where light is seen and where a difference occurs. The greatest thing most of us will do for God's kingdom is the influence we will make on the people that we know. As individuals, maybe we'll never do something great that makes the history books, but we may make an eternal difference in the lives of those around us. That is being salt and light in the world. We give light and give it abundantly. Our life should be a full blast of God's light to an unbelieving world. And that's, again, why it's so important that we have a heart that knows God. That's why it's important that our lives are not stuck in sin, something that Jesus will get to a little bit later in the sermon. We live for God not because we're afraid that we're going to lose our salvation, that we won't get to heaven, but we live for God. We reject sin because it blocks God's light. It it holds back what we're trying to shine to others. Because that's what we're supposed to do. Verse 16 says we're, our lives are to shine in such a way that people see our life. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works. Give glory to your Father who is in heaven. When we're living for the Lord, people see what we're doing. We don't live for Him to draw attention to ourselves, but when we live for Him, people see that's different. People don't live that way. People don't do that thing that you're doing. 
we live a completely opposite way from the rest of the world. Remember that video that was there talking about disaster relief work? That's why we're passionate about helping others there. The reason why that ministry in particular makes such a difference is because people are like, who are you people? Why are you helping me? Why are you helping me clean up after this disaster? Why are you giving me food that I don't have to pay for? People don't do those kind of things. And that's right. People don't, but God's people do. That's the example of the difference that he can make in us. And the reason it happens is not because something special in us, it's something he has to put in us, his light, his character. Our life is a spotlight on God. It's not that God needs a spotlight. He doesn't need us to shine a light on him, but we are shining saying, this is what God can do. This is the light that he offers. If you remember last week, we talked about John 3.30, which says, he must increase, but I must decrease. It's the same thing there, saying that our life is about making Jesus known, pointing others to him, saying this is how great Jesus is. The reason I'm acting this way is not because there's something special about me, but there's something special about him, and he has made a difference in my life. My life, my words, my actions are to reflect light back on Jesus. He is the source who must get the glory. And so that means God's people shouldn't live to make a name for themselves. They shouldn't live to be remembered for what they have done, but their life should be about making Jesus known. This is how God's people live. They live for God. They reflect his character so that others may see him. The reason Jesus is this important is because all of life and all of God's word is about him. Jesus tells us to live this way because Jesus fulfills the Bible's authority. That's what he then says there. He says, you're supposed to live this way, reflecting my light, because this is all about me. In verse 17, he says that he fulfills the Old Testament. He says, do not think that I've come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. Jesus thought he fulfilled the Old Testament. He thought, he believed, he said, it's true that the Old and New Testament fit together like two perfectly matched puzzle pieces in him. They are two parts of the one word of God. Jesus is claiming that all of the Old Testament, all of the Bible is really about him. Every book, every chapter, every verse in the Bible, including every verse in the Old Testament, has something to say about the person and work of Jesus Christ. It's either looking forward to it, it's saying there, there's a need here, there's something that we need, or it's telling us about him. It might tell us something about God that we see reflected in Jesus. It's looking ahead to him. And since the Bible has this authority, Jesus says it should be obeyed. In verses 18 and 19, he says, For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot, not any of the smallest letters or parts will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments, whoever teaches others to do the same, will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. As long as this world endures in its present age and state, the scripture has authority in it. The smallest detail in it will endure, and no part of it will pass away until all of it is accomplished and fulfilled. It's going to last until its purpose has been achieved. And that means we can trust what is in here. We can trust God's word. It has authority. It will endure. We do not have to doubt what it says. We do not have to doubt its relevance to us. 
And since it has this authority, since it will last, it should be obeyed. They must be treated with care, God's commands. His commands cannot be changed. They cannot be edited or deleted. They must be read. We have to put them into practice. Friends, it doesn't matter how much you know about the Bible if you don't live it out, if it doesn't make a difference in your life. The, when you get to heaven, there's not going to be a Bible trivia question, multiple choice to get in the gates. That's not going to be. It's going to be, do you have a relationship with Jesus Christ? And many people say, yes, yes, I do. Well, let's look at your life and see if it was lived out. That's what will be there. Our relationship with Jesus is what makes us ready for eternal life. Obedience is important to God. He gave us his word to tell us how he desires for us to live, to point us to the way that he wants us to live. We already talked about verse 20. It says that we need a life of exceeding righteousness. This is what we're looking for. And then the rest of chapter 5 of the Sermon on the Mount is fleshing this out. It's what does this exceeding righteousness look like? And when we studied through it, we didn't get to the end of chapter 5. We just started. The way Jesus unpacks this, the way he demonstrates to us, this is the kind of life you're supposed to have. Is he'll quote a verse from the Old Testament, and then he'll expand on it. He'll flesh out all its implications and its application. He does this six times in the chapter. There's six sections unpacking what it looks like for Christians to live out the Old Testament law. Each of them begins with him saying, you have heard it said, he says to those of old or to people long ago, you've heard it said to our ancestors, he'll give a commandment and then he'll say, but I say to you, and he'll say, this is what that actually looks like lived out in your life. These are examples of what exceeding righteousness looks like. We talked about two of them before we left off the Sermon on the Mount. First, Jesus talks about anger, and he says, if you're angry, what you need to do is reconcile now. If you're angry, you need to reconcile, restore that relationship now. Because to God, anger in the heart is the same as murder. He says in verses 21 and 22, you have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. Whoever says you fool will be liable to the hell of fire. These are extreme illustrations showing how important it is to Jesus, how serious he is about this. His point is that we have anger in the heart that is not healthy. It is dangerous. And it shouldn't affect how we're thinking or what we're saying. God's people should never use language that devalues others. He's talking about every person was created in the image of God. Every person deserves to be treated that way. Insults should not be thrown around lightly. Owning someone on Twitter is not worth having anger in our heart and being pushed away far from God. And the person who frequently insults others is revealing a heart that is far from God, a heart that is most likely broken and depraved. A heart filled with anger is not a heart close to the Lord. Because when we tear someone down, what we're doing is we are wishing that they were dead. We might not say that, but if you're devaluing someone as a human being and tearing them down, that is really what your words are communicating. You're saying you don't have value, you don't have worth, it's better if you did not exist, so I couldn't, don't have to listen to you or hear what you're saying anymore. That is not the way God calls his people to live. He calls his brothers and sisters in Christ to live at peace with one another, to love each other. If we're not, that's showing that we might not love Jesus because those who love Jesus 
have been changed by him. They've been changed on the inside. It's worked its way out. Jesus is not really concerned about good appearances on the outside. He wants hearts submitted to him on the inside. And when he's doing this, he's not calling us to something that's on its own impossible. He's not saying that you should never be angry. In life, we will occasionally get angry and frustrated. That, That will happen. It's an emotional response to something that happens. But what's not right is to let that anger sink into us. So it begins to mold us and shape our character. It becomes the defining characteristic of our life. Experiencing anger is not the problem. But what we do with that anger, that's where the problem can be. And so that's why it's so important that we reconcile now, we restore relationships when we're angry. Verses 23 through 26 say, So if you are offering your gift at the altar, and there you remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go. First be reconciled, restored to your brother. Then come and worship, offer your gift. Come to terms quickly with your accuser while you are going with him to court, lest your accuser hand you over to the judge, the judge to the guard, and you be put in prison. Truly I say to you, you will never get out until you have paid the last penny. If we're in a place where we are able to reconcile, where we're able to restore a relationship, we should do it as soon as possible. This is a call to humility, to genuine repentance. It's owning up to the fact, to what you have done to break this relationship and then making a permanent change as a result. There should be no argument or disagreement that ends in never talking to someone ever again and permanently breaking off from someone. Because Jesus is saying, if this is happening, well, then our worship is going to be worthless. If we're maintaining this anger, this bitterness towards someone, then our worship will not be accepted before God. That's what he's saying. He's saying you shouldn't offer a sacrifice. You shouldn't worship me if you don't have a restored relationship with someone. So instead of dwelling in anger, we need to work toward a resolution. If we've sinned against someone and we know it, we are responsible to seek reconciliation with that person, to seek to be restored. Now, When we talked about this, we realized that we're in a broken world and things don't always work out perfectly. Our responsibility is to seek that restored relationship. We're not responsible for how the other person responds. We may say, I I really want want to make things right with you, and they say, I'm not interested in that. Well, that's unfortunate that, that sin has so damaged what's there, but that is what we are called to do. We are responsible to seek reconciliation. Maybe that they're not interested but it's our call, calling to seek it. We may have to live with the things the way they are. God is the one who will have to work in their heart. Now, perhaps our anger comes from a situation where we didn't do wrong. It was the other person who just did wrong to us, and that's where our anger comes from. And Jesus isn't really specifically addressing that issue right here, but there's kind of a hint of it in there. And the hint of it is if we know Jesus, if we have a personal relationship with him, he will uphold our cause and he will bring justice. If we have pain, our pain is heard. It is seen. It will be dealt with. When we cry out to God, injustice, wrong has been done to me, God promises to act. And so what that means for us is we don't have to hold on to the anger connected to it. We may have been wronged. It may have been been terrible. I don't know what all 
everyone here has gone through, and I'm, I won't pretend to. And I won't pretend to understand all the emotions involved with it. But I will convey that we do not have to stay in a place of anger. I, I understand there. I'm not condemning you for being there right now, but God can move us out of that. And he can because he cares about us and cares about justice far more than we do. If the person who hurt you, if God is going to do a work in their life, they will come to genuine repentance. They'll realize the wrong that they have done. They will be broken over it. Now, maybe you'll never see that, but if God is going to work in that person, he will bring them to that place of knowing their sin and recognizing that what they did was part of the sin is why Jesus died on the cross. Their sin led to Jesus's death. They'll realize how terrible that is. If that person never comes to that place, if they never come to know God, then their sin will be dealt with in a far more severe way. And so that means for us, we don't need to hold anger. We don't need to get justice for ourselves because God takes care of that. We don't need to be angry if we have exceeding righteousness. We seek to restore relationships where we can. And the last place we left off was how we deal with sin in our heart. And Jesus says, if you're sinning or stuck in a sin, then you need to kill it, whatever it takes. Little tombstones there. Kill it, have a funeral for it, bury it, put it away. You don't have to have a funeral for it, but put it away. Have nothing to do with it. He starts by talking about just how dreadful sin is. 27 and 28, you have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you, everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. So Jesus is really talking about adultery, but it's something we can expand to look at all sin because he's saying adultery is not really one spouse cheating on another. That's really not what's going on. The issue is something going on in the heart. Something in the heart has produced that action. The heart is the center of our life, the center of our being. Now, in our 21st century minds, we're like, well, pastor, I know that really my thoughts happen in my brain, not in my heart. Okay, but we still say, I love you with all my heart. We still say you do something wholeheartedly. It's the metaphoric language talking about what the center of our being. It's important to us. And so Jesus is saying, if we, in this particular case, to lust, is to commit adultery at the center of one's being. He's saying that your sin is not just a matter of your actions. There's something in your heart first, and that something can produce those immoral actions. So this exceeding righteousness is not just that you're not doing wrong, but it's that your heart isn't dwelling on wrong as well. Your heart's dwelling on holiness, purity, and love. If we're going to have that type of righteousness, righteousness, though, it's going to need drastic action. It's only possible as God works in us by His Spirit. And that's what the very last two verses call for. He says, if your right eye causes you to sin, well, then you tear it out and you throw it away. It is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body be thrown into hell. If your right hand causes you to sin, you cut it off, you throw it away. It's better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body go into hell. Now we read those words, that they're striking, they stand with us. And you remember we talked about uh, that he's not telling us to actually poke out our eyes or cut off our hands. That's, that's not really honoring the body that he's given us. But he is saying we need to practice a ruthless self-denial that keeps us from sin. 
Citizens of God's kingdom behave as if they've removed parts of their life that keep them far from God. If there's something in our life that causes us to sin, then we work to remove it. We deal with it immediately. It's not something we taper off gradually. It must be cut off, removed. It's more than killing it, though. We also have to replace it with something that honors God. Because if we're honoring the Lord with our life, we'll be less likely to be stuck in sin. And what we talked about was this means we need to focus on Jesus and cut out whatever it takes. Our heart has to be focused on Christ, to be changed from the inside out. Only then will we be successful in living for Him. And if we're focused on Jesus, then we can take that drastic action. We can cut out whatever it takes, whatever is necessary. The Bible often uses this language of putting to death. For example, in Colossians 3, 5, Paul says, put to death what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, covetousness, which is idolatry. Saying, put to death these things that keep you far from me. We may have to cut out good things for the greater goal of knowing God and growing closer to him, being conformed to Christ. Whatever stands between you and God, whether good or evil, it's something that has to be removed from the place of prominence it has in your heart. I don't know what your sin struggle is. I don't know what's the thing that that most kind of pushes you away from God. I don't know what it is specifically, but whatever it is, there's something that if you take the time to think about it or pray about it, there's something that you know that's in your life that, that leads you into this sin. And that thing has to be changed, removed, cut out. It may have to be something you no longer do. Maybe it's something you no longer watch. Maybe it's something you no longer see. Maybe it's a person you need to spend less time with or spend time in a different way. Maybe it's changed the way you think about someone or think about a situation. But something needs to change and needs to change now if we're to have a right relationship with God. We must do whatever is necessary to pursue holiness. And then we fill our minds with the things of God. I don't have the verse up there, but what's so great about these sections about putting to death is Paul's and, and others aren't just saying, stop doing one thing, period. No, he says, stop doing that. Start doing these things. And this is something that Jesus is getting to. Remember, this is one long message, this one sermon that he's giving. So he's going to get to, in just a little bit, in fact, chapter 6, he's going to get to, if you're stopping doing these things, here's some things you can start doing. So we are getting there. But we invest energy in those pursuits, in pursuits that honor God. He talks about things, about giving. He talks about spending time in prayer. He talks about relying on the Lord, not living in worry, but dwelling on Him. And with that, we're now caught up to where we were before. So the sermon title was, What Did I Miss? So if you weren't here January, February, March, you now know what did you miss The next three weeks, we're going to finish chapter five. We're going to talk about more of these examples of things that define this exceeding righteousness and what it looks like. And then we'll go deeper into the sermon to see what a true Christian character looks like as it's lived out. But let's let's spend a moment. Let's pause. I know that we have a temptation to start putting our Bibles away because I said the last point and I said I'm wrapping up. I see you. I see what you're doing. This was a lot of things. We read a lot of scripture. I know that. And when you look at all of it, it can be overwhelming. Or she'd say, that's a lot of things, Pastor John. And that's actually probably a good response to have, is seeing that, yes, this is overwhelming. And maybe you think, maybe you don't know Jesus very well. Maybe you don't have a relationship with him. You haven't spent a lot of time in church. And so you see a thing like this, you're like, 
that sounds impossible. I don't think anybody can live that way and do all those things. To which I'd say, yes, you're right. No person can live that way on their own. And in fact, that's the problem is we fell short of that standard by so far that we were completely separated from God. And that's why God sent his son, Jesus. Jesus, though, did live that way. He did live perfectly. And since he lived that way, he was in a right relationship with God. But even then, he still died on a cross. He still took the punishment that our sin, that what we did, that separated us from God, he took all of that on himself. And because he did that, we can have a right relationship with God. These things no longer become a list of things that separate us from God. They become, if I know Jesus, this is a list of things that I can do. Not that I have to be afraid of, not that have to tear me down, but things that I'm able to live out. I'm able to live this way. So if you don't know Jesus Christ, if you don't have a relationship with him, whether you're here, whether you're online, I I implore you to, to seek him, to turn away from sin, and to come to know Jesus Christ. It is a decision that we have to make. Decision we have to make. I am going to follow Christ. I'm going to have a relationship with him. I'm going to seek him. So I encourage you to to do that, to come to know Jesus Christ. That's something you can talk to me about, but really scripture reveals it here. It's rejecting sin and believing, trusting in Jesus Christ. Ask questions about it, but come to know Jesus Christ. For those of us who know Christ, this can still seem overwhelming. It can still seem like a lot of things, but that's the whole benefit of the gospel of knowing Jesus. As if we know him, he gives us his Holy Spirit. He gives us the ability to live out what we read here. We can rely on him to change our lives to look more like what Jesus was talking about here. And as our lives change, we can rejoice and we can praise him because he brought about that change and he alone is worthy of praise.